on this episode of the Alt Normal. Normal. Everybody absolutely deserves unconditionally to experience pleasure and ease. And that's not about consumerism or having something or having a particular experience, just having the, the safety and the security and the non-commercialization that is required in order for people to really be in relationship with their bodies in a way that is useful and pleasurable. Another coronavirus vaccine has shown to be highly effective. Welcome to the Alt Normal, an exploration of the diverse voices on planet Earth. Joe Biden will become president of the United States. Doing the critical work of rebuilding a healthier, more sustainable alternative future. At the intersection of self, community, and the planet. We live in uncertain times. Powerful moments of revolution. How we choose to steer the path will determine what kind of alt-normal we consciously remake together. Everyone has a part to play. Let's rise. Shift and support this exciting new reality in the making. The alt-normal. Hi, I'm Tiffany Wen, the host of The Alt-Normal. This is a show that centers embodied integration as the absolutely critical force for rebuilding this post-pandemic world that's ever more sustainable, diverse, and inclusive. Culture needs a rebrand that goes deep at the core of who we are in the integration of our rich diversity, complexity, and emerging alternative paradigms. Let's be real. We are in a crisis of consciousness realizing that the only way to change things out there is to first change things in here. The power structures and institutions can only take us so far. To see a world that's diverse and inclusive for all actually requires us to change from the inside out, shifting into actionable models of power with one another versus power over one another. Now more than ever, we need a new story for humanity that leans into the diversity of who we are and our emerging zones of genius to live more truthfully in how we relate to ourselves, our community, and the planet. So let's pick up those forgotten pieces of ourselves to rebrand our story of humanity from one of separation to one of integration. We're talking integration of the mind with the body, the scientific with the spiritual, strategy with emergence, and the individual with the collective. This show is produced by Resonance, the creative practice of Dig, Seed, Grow, a methodology that powers our core capabilities in branding and content creation. Our mission is to design resonance between brands and their most valuable audience to drive the greatest possible impact. After 20 plus years of working in New York City and Milan for Fortune 500 companies in marketing and advertising, we decided to take the big leap and make a fundamental shift in how we work and bring brand stories to life. The Alt Normal is recorded at Destination Outpost, a co-living and co-working community based out in Bali. They have amazing spaces located in Ubud and Chenggu that enable people to live and work from paradise. 
encouraging people to live differently so they can work from beautiful destinations and build strong connections with others on a similar path through life. So I am so thrilled to be introducing our guest on the show today, Julie Ann Otis. Julie Ann Otis is an intuitive healer and artist committed to an experience of ease for every body. Julianne founded Samana Consulting in 2014 with the mission of empowering people to radically change their reality. Through civic engagement, art, courses, and one-on-one sessions, she has partnered with leaders all over the world to change the landscape of what is possible in healing and innovation. For more than 20 years, Julianne has offered embodied and empathic guidance to powerful leaders in universities, nonprofits, and lobbying organizations, as well as entrepreneurs investing in social justice. She has developed her practice of embodied receptivity practices, including creative visualization, meditation, neurobiology, and somatic feedback, by studying with remarkable teachers all around the world. Julianne brings her work as a guide over a decade of experience in not-for-profit management, vipassana, and meta-meditation practices, and body-mind integration work, including authentic movement, focusing-oriented therapy, and shinjin-jutsu. Hopefully I pronounced that right. Her civic engagement, art installations, have garnered her national and local press as an experimental artist, working at the intersection of peace building and public art. She has also performed at the Institute of Contemporary Art Boston, Boston City Hall, Harvard University, and festivals in Mexico and Honduras. Julianne has published two poetry collections, Elastic Union and Sermons of the Real, and Sermones de lo Real, and recorded two studio albums called Bodyful Journey, a guided embodiment meditation album, and Sermons of the Real, a live audience recording of highlights from her full-length poetry collection of the same name. I am so honored to have you on the show, Julianne. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Tiffany, and thank you for reading my full bio. How lovely to indulge me in in walking me through the whole landscape. That's so lovely to hear that. Thank you. Yeah, I didn't know what to cut because it was all very powerful and juicy. So there you go, the full thing. So I feel like there is just so much to integrate today in this conversation based on all the diversity that I see you embody in how you show up as a healer, a spiritual leader, and an artist. And before we dive into all of this, and specifically your work, Sermons of Real, which I'm incredibly curious about, I want to set the stage with something culturally that happened that was quite big, which was the story of a 22-year-old National Youth Poet Laureate named Amanda Gorman, who graced the presidential inauguration with a poem titled The Hill We Climb that essentially kind of blew up into the world and became 
she became this new voice of democracy as we as the U.S. enters this new chapter of American history together. And I recall that you also shared a poem leading up to or even during the inauguration. And um, as an artist yourself, I just want to open broadly with the question, what does um, this moment of Amanda Gorman represent largely for culture and the power of poetry and art to inspire change and inspire um, a much needed voice. Yeah, I was, um, I was really moved by her performance as well. Um, and it wasn't just her words. The, the poetry was absolutely lovely and sweeping. But for me, it's more about presence or it's just as much about presence and the the embodiment of hope, um, the embodiment of the future that she sees as possible was so was so there and so available to everyone as she took the took the podium and shared her work. And that really has shown up so vividly for me in the last few years um, that people's presence and what they're conveying in delivering energetically um, what they believe and what they envision for the future is just as powerful, if not more powerful than the, than the words that they've written. I think that's true for, for poets, for musicians, for, for any artist. So I, I really felt the gift of her presence. And I, I also really feel the gift of many of our cultural leaders right now. Um, it's really what we need. I, I, the first person that really actually comes to mind when I think of cultural leaders is is Dave Chappelle. You know, the the folks that are truth telling in a way that is deeply personal and raw, that helps us heal, that makes us laugh or moves our hearts. Our our cultural leaders are are standing up and should stand up, are standing up, have to stand up and. The folks that come to the foray from a place of love instead of a place of like, I have to stand up and like rail against something. Those are the people that move me the most. Those are the people that move me the most or the people that just have this radical compassion and honesty to like call things exactly as they are. But there's so many different kinds of, of cultural leaders that are showing up right now. And um, that's it's really inspiring, um, not just what they say, but really their their presence and their embodied vision of what's possible. Yeah, I I'm really happy that you um shed light on the presencing of Amanda Gorman because oftentimes we are focusing on just the content which was like you said sweeping, but the way in which she also showed up, I think needs to be mentioned. Yeah, earnestly and unapologetically positive and regal in her being. I love those words. And you are a wordsmith on so many levels. And I want to shift into your work, Sermons of the Real. And I want to read a little part of the introduction that was given by Daisy Vasquez. Hopefully I'm saying her name correctly. Daisy Novoa Vasquez. Daisy Novoa Vasquez. Beautiful. So she writes, quote, in Sermons of the Real, Julie Ann allows an even more intense gift of intimacy and vulnerability to come through the poems. She also provides a deeper connection to her experiences as a woman in America, speaking in a layered and specific way about rape culture, 
misogyny, and the subtlest forms of sexism. I hope that all readers, but especially women, feel when they read Julianne's poems that they are connecting with their ability to discover, summon, connect, and grow with their spiritual source of power. Society at large is not yet helping us to do this, but Julianne's poems are, end quote. So, you know, there's so much in this, and I mean, we can get into some of your work as well, but I also want to follow this introduction with the way that you started your work by saying, quote, every existential crisis leaves a paper trail, and this is that paper trail for me, end quote. So <laughs> maybe I can just let you sort of take us through why did you decide to write this collection of poems and what is this existential crisis? Yeah, so I I didn't decide anything. That that work decided to write me. <laughs> and um I had a a real awakening back in 2011-2012. I was just cracked right open, went through a big crucible. I had some trauma from when I was a kid that was just ready to be healed. Um and so I really, I cracked wide open and all those parts of me that were spiritual and sexual and intimate and vulnerable and creative and artistic, um, they were no longer on the sidelines, like very tightly leashed, like they got reintegrated, they became primary. Um, it was a very painful process, especially for somebody who was highly accomplishment oriented, growth minded and materialistic. If I couldn't see it, taste it, um, hear it, touch it, then it wasn't real. Like talk about, um, somebody who didn't believe in magic <laughs> and thought people who, you know, worked with energy or like talked to the universe or even believed in God. Like I thought all those people were, um, dumb. <laughs> so, so I, you know, so I clearly got my karmic comeuppance, <laughs> you know, over the, over, over that experience over the years. Um, but when that when that crack open happened, uh, poetry just started flooding out of me, flooding, flooding out of me. Um, and that's really the way that I've written ever since um, with my with my poetry. I, I um, it just I'm I'm a conduit and it just flows through me. And I have the exact same experience as an intuitive healer. So I just show up. I open up the window. <laughs> I open up the door. I let the light in. I let the air in. And then what comes through is what comes through. It's not quite channeling. Uh, because I think that um, I'm still very much here. There's still very much my personality and my personal story is connected to what's flowing out. Um, but regardless of whether it's in a healing session or in writing poetry, it very much is about me just showing up and getting out of the way. And when I wrote um, Sermons of the Real or Sermones de lo Real, um, it was a flood. I mean, it was just a flood. I This collection, I think, is like a 100 poems or 80 poems. and But that year... I probably wrote 300 poems. I mean, it was, it was a, it was just a flood. It was a total flood. Um, and so eventually I culled together the ones that I love the best. I had met my uh, publisher when I was down performing in Honduras and we uh, published it uh, in both English and Spanish in this, in this volume, which I just 
grabbed off the shelf in case. Um, and yeah, that's, that's pretty much the story. Like it, it wrote itself. And I, uh, I was, I was willing to go along because if I didn't, I would be broken. It was uh it was a calling and it needed to come through like a flood. And you picked the book off the shelf. And at any point, if you feel moved to color something that you're sharing with a poem, then please, uh, the invitation is to do so. And you touched on this already, but, you know, really zooming in on these times of heightened uncertainty. What do you feel like it means to be a spiritual leader, artist, and healer, which in Sermons of the Real you say are actually all the same thing, contrary to how we tend to separate these things in the West? And what what does it mean and what potential does it have to navigate these incredibly complex times that we're living in? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you my my experience right now is just one of a continued unsiloing of so many things that we thought were separate. Um, whether it's um, healing and art, whether it's us and the earth, <laughs> you know, um, we just had so many delineations and so many things at arm's length distance, and the these these fences and these walls are just some of them are eroding slowly over generations and some of them are just disappearing overnight and so i'm not i'm not sure that i can say what that what that means i mean i'm i'm happy to go into like prophecy <laughs> like you know if you want to know like where where you think where you where if you want to know what i think in terms of where we're headed where we're going um but I will say my my experience is one of a heightened a, a need for for more capacity to let go. You know, it's almost like the more you try to hang on to the steering wheel as we go through this, <laughs> the more you're going to chafe, and the more overworked your muscles are going to get, and the more the car can't actually take you where it wants to take you. Um, it's uh, just our, our capacity to allow and, and let go um, allows us to feel easeful and have joy in this reunification of things that all were interdependent to begin with, that we kind of pretended weren't. <laughs> um, and what I feel is really important, um, and maybe this, this gets to your question about meaning making, um, but in my work as a, as a pleasure activist, really standing for pleasure being a birthright for every body, like every body absolutely deserves unconditionally to experience pleasure and ease. And that's not about consumerism or having something or having a particular experience, just um, having the, the safety and the security and the, um, non-commercialization that is required in order for people to really be in relationship with their bodies in a way that is useful and pleasurable. So that's, um, that's where I say we're headed, <laughs> you know, it might be a few generations from now, but that really is the, that's the world that I stand for. Um, and that's what I, that's what I see pour out of me in my poetry. Um, that's what I see in my clients 
that's what I see that's already there with my clients. That's just happens to be covered with, you know, one to 1000 layers of onion skin over it. You know, um, that does actually, uh, if, uh, that does call to mind a, a poem that I would like to read if you are amenable, um, from, uh, so I've just completed my third book called liquid grace and I don't have an agent or publisher for it yet, but it's, um, one of my favorite pieces from this book is fear lies to us. Fear lies to us, lies and lies, says we can quench our thirst by drinking sand, says tomorrow, always tomorrow is where satisfaction waits. Fear lies to us, says not enough and never, says you are alone, even as you eat a meal born of others' hands and love. Fear lies to us and is our most reliable friend. See her plainly through every disguise, a trusted enemy who will always point the wrong way. And this really, for me, describes my experience with, with fear, with doubt, with worry, with anxiety, with furious mind and with delusion of separateness, which is part of a, a chant that I can share with you later, um, that we can rely on these emotional states to show us where we are not aligning with just like birthright worthiness and enoughness. And not in a way that's like, I shouldn't be feeling fear. Or I shouldn't be feeling doubt. And like, I'm a, you know, I'm not a, you know, spiritually mature person because I'm still experiencing worry. Like, no, not like that. But it can be a reliable, these, can, these emotional states can be reliable friends because they, they signal to us like, ah, this is not in alignment with my actual, you know, birthright joy. And that's okay. Right. It's just showing us where the stories we've inherited are still grinding against what we actually what we actually deserve and the connection that's actually there underneath that. And when you talk about was it 2014 or was it 2011 when everything cracked open for you and the, the poems flooded in and you actually um, left for Bali and began this new chapter in your life, would you say that this was your moment of finding, I guess, your birthright experience of pleasure and easiness and enoughness and all of these qualities that are inherently within us, but they just grind up against all the things you just named? That's such a good question because I didn't have this kind of experience of pleasure and ease, I think, until this past March. <laughs> like, I stood for it before I fully felt it, and I stood for it, and then I kind of felt it a little bit, and I would, like, stand for it and be like, I can't stand in that, or I can't stand for that. Um, so pleasure and ease did not come till later. So the big break, uh, the big break open and catalyst happened in 2011 to 2012. I quit my full-time job in not-for-profit management at the end of 2013, 2014. I traveled to Bali. One of, I had, there were so many gifts 
of studying in Bali, but the biggest gift that I carry with me daily now is that in Bali, our artistic practices, our healing practices, and our religious or spiritual practices are all the same thing, right? So on average in Bali, there's ceremonies 19 days out of every month. It's not only a place where we're coming together to be social and like swap gossip, and flirt with each other and catch up with different families. Um, but it also is a place where we're coming to be healed. We're coming to hear a, a story, a spiritual or religious story, and we're experiencing an art form, whether it's um, gamelan or topang. And the artist is the healer, is the priest. And that is, that's true for me every day. Like I touch that identity, that, that trip, that three in one, <laughs> the Holy Trinity, <laughs> that three in one identity is, um, that when I re I just, that seed was planted in 2014 when I was in Bali of like how a reality could be. And then slowly over time, it's like the, the kingdom or queendom of that began to build from that cornerstone. And now it's the land that I live in. You know, now that's the reality that I live in. And one of the gifts of the pandemic from this past March was that I finally um, took, took that vow with the universe to completely let go of worry. Doesn't mean that worry doesn't show up from time to time. I am human. But there was something really pivotal this past March when reality showed itself as so much more malleable, even than I had thought before. And I already thought it was pretty malleable. <laughs> um, but there was something about this past March when the pandemic hit the U.S. where I just was like, got it. Like, I'm ready to get married to enoughness. <laughs> like, I'm ready to get married to faith in the universe. Not blind faith, but faith. You know, I'm, I'm ready to be a co-creator in a way that I'm not going to keep dragging around the chains and the weight of all this inherited suffering from grind culture, white supremacy and patriarchy and racialized capitalism. Um, and that didn't that didn't happen until this past March. So it's been almost a year. But it's, you know, it's kind of like I was talking about before, there's a lot of it that just erodes slowly over time. And then there are pieces that just pop and your reality has changed. Right. So both are happening. Both are happening. That's, I'm so happy you named that because um, it's one thing to stand for something and even intellectualize something so well that you feel like you know it. And then it's another thing to let that literally sink into your cells and actually signal new ways of being from within. Yeah. This is this might sound a little weird and I don't like it necessary I don't like to say this necessarily especially in like a gender or relationship context but it was kind of like am I willing to let the universe have its way with me? <laughs> like I don't want to say that in like a human to human context ever, but it was kind of like are you willing to just, you know, hear the call and follow the call here? Are you willing to like, let the universe work through you? Are you willing, are you willing to let this be easeful? Are you willing to let this be easier? Are you willing to stop trying to push and shove an effort and cajole? And that is an addiction. That is a very real addiction. And I've never met a human being that didn't have that partly because I haven't traveled enough by that, <laughs> but, um, but at least in the West, 
you know, there's, there's just an addiction to efforting. And my, I'm so glad in the bio that when I heard that phrase and you pointed to my incredible teachers, because it instantly brought them into the room for me. One of my incredible teachers, Alexis Santos, was describing wise effort. Uh, He's one of my Buddhist teachers, describing wise effort. And he said, how much effort does it take to see out of your, out of your eyes? How much, how much effort does it take to see? That's wise effort. That's it. So if you think of that as wise effort and all the rest of the efforting as extra, right, then it's like, holy crap, so much over efforting. And I, I don't want to, I don't want to belittle or, um, diminish the, the resistance and the push and the effort that does have to happen in order to, you know, deconstruct oppressive systems, right? That's very real. That does take energy. Yeah. Um, and I want to point to what's possible if we would just stop efforting so much, especially, um, especially white women, especially white saviorism, like, please stop doing so much, right. And just be and see, just see, see and listen and, you know, be present and receive Maybe don't order so much on Amazon. (laughs) You know, I'm just, I'm really interested in where we can do less. I'm really interested in where we can do less, where we can cause less harm. And this makes me think of before this podcast, we had a conversation to explore some of the big questions that might not always have the clearest answers, but can begin to unravel possibility. And you are a question queen, And you create many spaces where it's possible to be with big questions and to feel less need to answer them right away, which is something I really appreciate about you. And two questions that I just want to uh, pluck out that you have asked uh, are, what is possible in this post-pandemic world? And then to take it a little bit further, how do I or and we embody what we already know is possible. We know these things, ease, enoughness, efficiency are possible, but how do we actually begin to start embodying not what we intellectually know, but what already exists within the body? And you have, you know, studied with all these remarkable teachers, and this is something that I see you teaching other people how to do that with all these diverse disciplines that you've accumulated over your life. And this is probably a broad way to start, but can you kind of, I don't lift the hood of the car and take us on a tour of what it means to go into your body for answers to big questions? Oh my God, doesn't that sound super scary? Like, oh my God, I'm going to go into my body and like, who knows what's there? Many, many Buddhist teachers say your your mind is a scary place. Don't go there alone. (laughs) Big fan, big fan of that. Uh, It's a really good, really good lesson. Yeah. And your body is also can be a scary place. Don't go there alone. And then once you feel like you have your bearings, it can be a, a wonderful playground to tap in and look. Um, before I, before I dive into that, could you say that second question again, that had come out of our session together, the, how do you embody? 
Mm. So the question was, how do I embody what I already know is possible? Yeah. And and when you read that question the first time just now, um, my instant feeling was I am 100% sure that you had that experience at some point today. So if you look back, and maybe I'll invite listeners to do this too. If you look back on today, there was probably a moment when you either felt in your body that what you are asserting is possible and what you know is possible is actually possible and you feel that in yourself. Or you may have just taken an action. You know, maybe it was a phone call or it was an email or it was, you know, something that you touched like a physical object that is that is not separated from your knowledge of what's possible. It exists in that relationship and that action and that thought um, in that feeling in the body. It might just be, you know, one moment right before you fall asleep where you're like, <laughs> where you're, where you're connected really in your, in your body to what, what you know is possible. But to go back to what you said before too, you know, when you were distinguishing, it's one thing to know something intellectually, and it's another thing to really stand in it and feel embodied, feel it somatically. You know, sometimes you do fake it till you make it. I have a um, a piece of paper on my wall that I'm looking at right now that I made maybe a, a year or two ago that says, I stand by my work, I stand for my work, and I stand because of my work. And it reminds me that I, I literally am here today because of the easeful practices, because of the practices of pleasure and ease that I have been given, been taught and developed. And so, and I stand for those things. And sometimes I don't feel that. <laughs> like, you know, if I'm in, if I'm in a stage of like clinical depression for a couple of days and I look over and I see that, it's almost like I just have the memory of my faith and I have a sneak preview of how I'm going to feel again. And it kind of just, re- it kind of reminds me that how I'm not feeling or not connected to my purpose is temporary, which is very useful. But it's not like you get to a place of being somatically connected to everything you believe, and then you're never separated from it again. Like people, even people who are very well acquainted with what's going on in their body and the information that's coming from there, they're very intuitively mature and um, have that intuitive intelligence. You know, they don't, they might be in there a lot of the time. There might be a lot of conversation happening from there, but it's not a point of arrival. Like, it's not like they turn into like golden light and ascend. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So this, um, this, uh, I just wanted to kind of speak to those pieces before I go, before I go under the hood, because I, uh, what I see a lot, especially in Western Buddhism is it just becomes another ladder to climb, you know, whether it's, um, whether it's meditation or other spiritual practices. And it also can happen in, in focusing oriented therapies and somatic practice. It can happen in, in practicing authenticity, like who can get the most raw. It's not, um, if it's accomplishment oriented, you're going the wrong direction. <laughs> like then it's still, then it's still a relationship of dominating something, you know? So I just wanted to speak to that and then, uh, and see if you have any questions about any of that, but then I'm happy to, to kind of talk about the specific practices that I use in going under the hood too. 
That is so perfect. And I don't know why this just came to my mind, but this is something, this is a word that I've used um, to just make light of, uh, yeah, this, this trend that I see where there's achievement and healing and this like phrase like healing junkie where you go from one modality to the next to the next to the next, but nothing's actually being integrated because uh, you're more uh, hyped on like checking off these modalities instead of really being with, okay, how do I uh, resource the download or the transformation into how I show up in life and really f- meet reality with different lenses? Yeah. Or it's this, I mean, it's basically the same uh, you know, it's that same grind culture or uh, consumerism that's just turned to uh, spiritual goods, you know, healers, classes, the, all these things are are great. But if you're trapped in that eddy of I'm still trying to fix myself, honey, you missed the point. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, if you've been going to different healer and different healer and different healer and different modality and different modality. And it's in the context of, or predicated on the notion of I'm not fixed yet. You are missing the point of life. Like I go through my life finding all sorts of new healers and modalities and, and ways of exploring, but the, but the context is one of what would light me up and turn me on and give me joy or open my perspective or like scratches my next itch of curiosity. If it's, if it's a constant looking for a way to fix myself, or if it's like that breakthrough junkie, you know, then it, and that's very real. And I I just really want to disclose, like, I've been there, like I have been a breakthrough junkie. Okay. Maybe 15 years worth of that, even before I had my big crack open in 2011, Um, like going back to like 98, breakthrough junkies and it's the adrenaline right it's the drama in my art installations a few years ago the tagline that i always used is how do we make peace as captivating as conflict because peace is neutral it's undramatic like how the hell are you going to pull people in with that like where's the conflict like where's the where's the judge <laughs> you know what i mean and it really takes some creativity to to have neutrality, harmony, become something that's not just um, palatable, but attractive, like really gets you going. So coming back to this like breakthrough, breakthrough junkies, like they're on the same thing. It's just like a rat race. It's just in a different context, right? Because you're getting that. Is it dopamine? I don't know. I'm not that scientist. <laughs> but you're getting, you know, you're tapping, you're tapping into that, to that, to that drama and that um that oomph, you know, that you're looking for. And again, that's not, I just want to say about that, of course, of course we're breakthrough junkies. Of course we're still riding out those addictions. Those are inherited. We never would have chosen those if given a choice. You know, we never would have, we never would have chosen that. And uh, yeah, it can, you can, you can definitely get in the same cycles, just uh, different, different classroom, same, uh, same hunger, same hungry ghost, different classrooms. That's it. So uh, did did we did we quite peek under the hood yet, or do we want to shift into that a little bit later? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm 
I'm delaying. I'm delaying. I'm delaying. So yeah, actually, I'll just give you a very simple rundown. And actually, your your listeners will probably already be very familiar with some kind of um, somatic work. You know, some kind of conversation or relationship with the body. But when I meet somebody for whom this is completely foreign territory, they might just be aware of analytical intelligence and emotional intelligence, but they have no idea like what is intuitive intelligence and somatic intelligence. Where I begin is by um, asking them, do have they ever had the experience of butterflies in their stomach? Um, or have they ever had the experience of knots in their neck? You know, and just out of that, uh, they can recognize that there's an experience that they've had that's physiological and also energetic and has emotional content and has a message, right? Those are kind of your four pieces that are happening in somatics. So just by starting there, you know, and I, I've never met a person yet that didn't have some kind of experience in their body that had all of those four four together. So then I let them know that's your body screaming. That's like the dial up to 11. <laughs> and so what I do when I work with people is I, uh, I work with people so that they can walk a path of resensitization, just softening into more listening, opening creative dialogue in a playful way, not a like go mine in there, go dig away, but just in a playful open way to just see what else the body has to say so that we can resensitize the instrument and listening to get it down to like a four or a three. So it's kind of like somebody who, you know, at first they just know how to tell time and then we strengthen their analytical intelligence and now they can do a cash flow analysis. Um, or somebody who has emotional intelligence, you know, at first they might just be able to identify like that person's in a good mood, that person's in a bad mood. And then, you know, there's this kaleidoscope of emotions that they can begin to, to feel into. And then a whole other level of like, how do I communicate with them? How do I listen to them? How do I talk to them and start to develop empathy? So in the same way, somatic practices and intuitive healing can build that toolkit and also regain that sensitivity to be able to tell the difference between a Pinot Noir and a cab instead of just red and white, right? <laughs> so some of, the, uh, some of the practices that I use are focusing-oriented therapy, which is a way of being in creative dialogue with a felt sense in the body. I use uh, meditation, both uh, mainly metta meditation, which is loving kindness, um, tenderness, compassion, and I also, when I'm seeing people in person, I use Jinjutsu, which is a hands-on healing practice. It was given from Jiro Murai in Japan to Mary Burmeister, who then brought it over to the United States, I think 80 years ago now, 60 years ago. She's since passed on. But this is an art of working with safety energy locks in the body simply by putting hands on, not using any kind of manipulation of the muscle or fascia, simply allowing the body to do its own healing by using the hands like jumper cables. <laughs> so just putting your hands on those places. And again, being in that space of presence to allow energy to flow through. So I'm not doing anything. I'm just putting my hands on and I'm allowing energy. I'm allowing the energy to do what it's doing to rebalance and unblock itself. So that's been a very powerful combination for me, being able to do intuitive healing sessions where we journey within and combining that with some hands-on practice. In my other retreats, um, I do bring in some authentic movement practice, um, but I, I haven't really found that that's been entering much into the one-on-one -on -one work. 
And if you don't mind me putting you on the spot, we had a session together. And so I'm wondering <laughs> for my own, like for out of my own curiosity, like I just described what I think is happening under the hood, but I'm wondering for you, like, how would you describe this to somebody if they've never, you know, done somatic work or they never met me, they're not familiar with my practices. Like what, what was it like, or what is that journey? Yeah, that's, I remember we we had a call and right before that I did something to my shoulder which I is where I always feel pain and it was this just ongoing spasm that completely consumed me and because of our relationship I told you right away and you were just you just like you know swept on in and said would you be open for for a little session and I just I couldn't say no to that and even just saying yes to that and receiving that, I already felt different um, on the subtlest level of energy. And also for for listeners out there, I was never someone that uh, naturally embraced energy work. In fact, up until a year and a half ago, um, when I learned Reiki 1 and Reiki 2, I was so... um, aggravated by the mere mention of Reiki or energy because I couldn't feel it. (laughs) Oh my God, you and me both, you and me both. Yeah, it's like I was so hardcore materialist before the universe had its way with me. Yeah, I was just like, where's the science? Like, how does it actually work? What do you mean there's just hands? It can't be that easy, you know, just try and find that catch. And, (laughs) you know, and, you know, you, so going back to our session, you walked me through just closing down the eyes and just taking up as much space as possible and just guiding me into my body like a tour guide would, you know, in a land, but like the land being the interior landscape. Oh my God. That's such a great description. Yeah. I am a, I am a tour guide inviting you to observe whatever parts of this zoo (laughs) you would like to observe. That's it. And I remember, you know, typically in practices I've done, we take up as much space in the body. And only recently have I tapped into what would it be like to take up space beyond the body, you know? And Joe Dispenza also talks about this. And, you know, at first it's like, okay, let's just pretend because I don't feel it, but let's still go with it. And at a certain point, that resistance, uh, like, what is that? Uh, That's where that fake it till you make it really actually does work. And you know who else does great with that is Barbara Corella. She teaches um, tantric breath. Highly, highly recommend. If you want to have a light body orgasm just using your breath, Barbara Corellis. Let me say her name one more time. Barbara Corellis changed my life. Also for all of you who are single during the pandemic, Barbara Corellis. Um, but she's so great. She's like, it's okay. Like if you're not experiencing in the body, that's okay. Just ask this question of like, if I were to feel something, what might it feel like? Or like, what could it feel like? That kind of invitation to imagine is what, um, is what dispels this idea that I'm going to have the right or wrong experience or I've like tapped in or I haven't tapped in. It's not like that. It's like, you've got all this oil paint you got a blank canvas and like, it's going to, it's, you're just going to start putting stuff up there and it's going to end up being a painting. You don't know what it's going to be yet. And there's no right answer, you know? It's it. That's what it is. And I think 
going back to looking at the way we've been conditioned in the West to, you know, achieve or to set goals and to work towards them, I don't feel like that way of being is really going to allow a person who wants to experience their energy body really take up the space that will truly benefit them in the end. They're kind of at odds with each other. Yeah. It always cracks me up when like I hear that Raytheon has meditation over their lunch hours offered. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, wow, I wonder how that's gonna <laughs> butt up against itself. Like how, you know what I mean? Like if that, if, if those, if those explorations are successful, those people quit their jobs. Yeah. And, and, you know, and even when the jobs have been quit, it's, it's this, it's this lifelong practice too, where, you know, you describe the onion layers and, you know, and, and it's so easy to forget sometimes and fall off and then you come back. And once you've touched that texture of, I, I think I have more power than I've ever been led to believe, then the cracks start to widen and um, you, you can actually, I know it sounds very simplistic, but like you can feel more of yourself. And it, it segues really nicely into sort of new models of power that I want to explore with you. So we've been talking about ease, sufficiency, now rest, and really at the bottom of all these things, I sense the emergence of 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 love um, in a more radical way than we've traditionally used that word or seen that word expressed in pop culture. Um, and you know, of course, when I think of the word love, I do think of Marianne Williamson, you know, who ran for president, and she ran on the ticket of love, and even wrote um, a book called The Politics of Love. And I just want to bring out a quote, um, quote, it was love that abolished slavery. It was love that gave women suffrage. It was love that established civil rights. And it is love that we need now. And of course, when the word love came out in the political scene, it was like, whoa, who's this woo woman who's, you know, trying to completely, um, you know, shift uh, something that's been so traditionally not about love into this word that like is only behind closed doors. And she was like our, she was like our Ross Perot. <laughs> only people who are old enough to understand that reference, <laughs> that reference, but she was like our Ross Perot. Like she was like perfectly in the margins, like not, you know, just enough to like pull things a little bit further in that direction, you know? Exactly. And, you know, for me, I remember seeing that and my entire body flooded with hope and excitement. And I think I got more excited about politics because I've never been one to really engage so politically. Of course, that's changed given the events of the last four years. Um, but that being said, one of the other questions that we explored before this podcast that I want to bring in again is what if power and love took up the same space? What could be possible yeah, they're the same thing. They're the same thing. I I think my experience in investigating what love is was most formed and also the personal love as political love was mainly formed by the 
writings and talks of Audre Lorde and her, especially her talk on the erotic. I'm actually, I'll, I'll read you a, a poem in a moment that really is about, that is about love in the way that I conceive of it. And it, it may not sound political right away, but it actually is very political. Um, but I also want to mention Bell Hooks, I think has done some incredible questioning of how we define love and what love is in this context of, of what is what is power and and if love is political then then what does that look like and i actually i don't think i've told anyone this yet i'm writing this little book right now that's called julianne's guide to north american love and it's almost like different kinds of birds but it's different kinds of love and so there's like that that love of not being the one who has to change the toilet paper roll and that love of the stranger you see in the coffee shop all the time and you have no idea what even their voice sounds like or what their name is but you have an entire world made up for them there's there's just so many different types of love you know even in its most basic there's there's like the crush oh my god the crush is like one of my favorite forms of love oh my god it's so sweet and easy and there's limerence there's you know it's not just it's not just platonic or romantic or or political you know if we think of this as there being an infinite number of artworks and ways to create art there's an infinite number of types of love and how to make love or how to cultivate cultivates a better word because love is not love is not something you do it's a place you go you know either with yourself or with someone else but i yeah just as you were as you were talking about that i i think i'd like to read this piece also from uh the new collection liquid grace and it's called seahorse when i say we heal the earth through our love i do not mean mine me for crude oil I do not mean admire me as a sunset, rosy and shining well beyond arm's length. I do not mean we are two hemispheres completing, needing the other to bear what we cannot. When I say we heal the earth through our love, I do not mean my mountains feel more real when you scale them. I do not mean the air is clearer after your exclamation. I mean we heal the earth because your heart leaps with my satisfaction in a completed crossword, in a chaise lounge, or in your arms. I mean that our joy-feeding joy mirrors the earth's natural inclination, flowers in a million colors for no reason but the beauty, a vast palette of climates and creatures and currents. And who could have thunk up a seahorse? The preciousness of life is not potential procreation. I do not love you, I do not love the toad for the guppies it will bear. I don't worship you or the earth for superior efficiency. The tides do not sway me to get somewhere faster. When I say we heal the earth through our love, what I mean is we are letting the earth love us. Organs of delightful design, hearts wired for ecstatic evolution. What I mean is our breathing is no different than the forests and that I know this more deeply when your lips are on mine. And even though that piece is, it does invoke romantic love, there's something in there for me about how we are in love with one another that, that does connect us with the earth, that does dispel that myth of separateness. It, it, it also 
at certain points, you personified the earth in such a way that I didn't know who was who. Like, I'm the earth. The earth is me. There's no separation anymore. (laughs) The jig is up. It's not just that the earth is our home. We are our homes. This is all home. (laughs) All of it is one thing. Um, I don't want to like veer off of this road into a side lane too quickly, but I do want to ask you how your shoulder is. My shoulder is that we worked on. Yeah. Yeah. The the shoulder is, I mean, what it was that moment in time when you and I talked was, it was, it was like a volcano erupting and doing all sorts of crazy things. And now it's 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 like a very serene mountain. <laughs> um, no, no density in there. Um, although, you know, as as we all know, you know, there's always those parts of the body where when you're stressed or when you're not sleeping, it always just shows up in that space. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna like out you or share your journey too much, but do you, if you remember, uh, where that connected to in your body to like where to go to source or where to go to be, uh, when, uh, when that was showing up, have you practiced with that at all? So not as much as I would like to, but I'm like still putting you on the spot <laughs> right now. <laughs> well, I actually, you can edit this out later if you want, right? I just like, like I want to ask all the questions now. I know, I know. I mean, because you are the intuitive healer. So I get that way too. When I'm asked a lot of questions, I want to, you know, even it out. Um, I, I, I do want to explore this further <laughs> with you. And I guess, Just for now, I'll say that it was amazing that I was able to listen for the message of the pain so quickly and simply because you gave me space and you held it. And for people listening that are, you know, facilitators, coaches, leaders of any kind that are helping people connect more deeply to themselves – you know, I think this this little um, little slice of an anecdote is important because our body is incredibly intelligent and constantly providing clues um, to deeper sources of truth. And the more the more crazy stuff you're willing to let come into your potential reality, the more amazing stuff does happen. You know, the more you can conceive of as maybe possibly happening then the more likely it is going to be possible, <laughs> you know? that That's what it is. And I, I think this is great. And, you know, we're kind of coming to a close in this conversation, but we're moving into the envisioning piece where, um, you know, you, again, intersect so beautifully uh, just your poetry, your art, the intuition and the intelligence of intuition and how it expresses somatically and all the other things that you do and bring together. And you have many offerings. And I, just for funsies, if you could gift one of your offerings or courses um, to anyone, any organization, any culture, anything in the world right now in 2021, who would that before and which of your offerings would you wish to gift? 
that's such a great question. Also, you're very good at marketing me. Thank you. (laughs) That's like the perfect question for me to be like, here's all the things that I offer. Um, But I will will say first uh, that I do offer a free half hour consultation to anybody who's interested and um, no matter where you live. And that's the, that's the delight of now uh, being able to work remotely. Um, So if anybody's interested in a a free half hour consultation, uh, it really is a, it's, it, it really is a full session. I mean, you and I, Tiffany, did, I think, a 20-minute session. So, um, yeah, so folks can find that on my website, which is julianotis.com. So I freely offer that to the world. <laughs> um, but to answer your question, yeah, I think I would give, yeah, I think I would give the gift of, of one-on-one sessions um, to to women who have not been surrounded by communities that really have the ability to connect with their reality right now. Do you know? So if there's, if there's women out there who, you know, they feel something in their body, like there's supposed to be something more like this cannot be all there is, or this, this is broken, you know, women who are basically in communities or structures or relationships that they can tell like that, like you were saying, the, the walls are cracking, you know, or the floor is shifting but they're surrounded by all these people that are just part of these models that like are going the way of the dodo. Those, um, those would be the people that I would like to, yeah, give, give the work to. Beautiful. So it's out there. We put it out there. And I always like to close these conversations out by inviting you to share a message or question or maybe even something that you wrote to leave our community of listeners um, with something to ponder and reflect on beyond this conversation. Mm, That's great. Yeah. Um, I think I'll offer, normally I would offer this poem called Benediction, but I think I'd like to offer this poem Skilled. We are so skilled at harvesting the wheat, collecting the eggs, churning the butter, but who knows how to wait for dough to rise? When we are seized, we know how to thrash like a dog who will not yield her prize, but who knows how to give slack, to lessen the grip? The one who knows how, who lets the sun ascend, time after time her desire falls right into her lap. Ooh, goosebumps, Julianne. <laughs> oh, Tiffany, you are such an easy, awesome audience. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You're so fine. Biggest compliment <laughs> ever. I was such a joy to just give you this stage to weave through all of your experience and wisdom and observations of the world in a way that is playful and easy and fun because it could be heavy and hard and there's a place for that too but the way that you alchemize it into something that's very palatable for not just people in the spiritual world and not just for people in the material world but kind of all flavors and textures in between is really an art and you know for all of you listening um feeling lifted, uplifted, shifted, inspired in any way. Um, We will include all of Julianne's um, links in the show notes so you can follow along and connect after this. 
And please, to help us amplify these stories far and wide, please give us a share, a subscribe, a review, if at all. Um, would love that support. And thank you so much again, Julianne, for joining us. It was such a pleasure. It was such an honor. Thank you so much, Tiffany. And we will see you guys next week. The Alt Normal. This show is produced by Resonance, the creative practice of Dig, Seed, Grow. If you enjoyed this conversation, please show us the love. You can subscribe, share, or leave a review. We'd be so grateful to help us amplify these stories far and wide. Thanks so much.